I'm Carly Vina, and I will be your host for episode 334 of At Percussion. With me today, as usual, are Casey Cangelosi. Hey, Casey. Hey, what's up, Carly? Hey, everybody. How's, how's your lunch going, Casey? Real good. Thanks. No, this is a good, good lunch activity. <laughs> Caleb Pickering's also here. Hey, Caleb. Hey, I am here. Welcome. Thanks. Welcome to you. <laughs> And Ben Charles is also here with us. Hey, Carly, how are you? Good. How are you, how's it going, Ben? I'm doing well. I'm very happy to see you're playing Kevin Putz's Legions Will Rise, one of my favorite pieces. Yeah, coming up in October. It's so fun. It's, it's more fun for anybody that's played it. It's more fun the second time. The first time was a little scary putting it together. Um, it feels so much better now. I'll amend that and say it's more fun to listen to. <laughs> yes. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> have you have you um have you taken a gander at his marimba solo written, I think, prior to that piece? Canyon, I've actually right? not. Yeah. Canyon. It's cool. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. The yeah. La that last movement's yeah, out, out of control. I think Makoto Nakura, a few, a few people play it. Makoto Nakura's got the recording, but yeah, I think it's such, such I think a it was, piece. I think it was written for Lee Stevens. For, for Makoto Nakura. Is it? I thought it was written for Lee. No, it's for Dude. Makoto Nakura, Ben. Ben, oh. that's it. That's enough. <laughs> Aren't you the history guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ben, you're thinking of, you're thinking of, um, um, shoot, I can't think of his piece. Rhythmic Caprice, that's what you're thinking of. No, no. You're mixing them up. So speaking of Ben being the history guy, this is Ben's first history segment of this season. I don't know whether I should be excited or worried, but <laughs> today's episode will be released on September 29th. So Ben, what happened in music history on September 29th? Sadly, no, no terrible punny quiz today. But uh, so I have three items, two, two small ones and one headliner. Uh, the first one is in 1947, Dizzy Gillespie made his Carnegie Hall debut. Uh, the second one, this is just one year ago in 2021, uh, in downtown Detroit, Eminem opened his restaurant called Mom's Spaghetti, <laughs> named after a line in his song, Lose Yourself. And the first fans in line were served by Slim Shady himself. Um, and the big headline item for today is that in 1967, Mickey Hart joined the Grateful Dead. Uh, Mickey Hart, if you're not familiar, is one of the most influential percussionists of, the, of today, basically. Uh, he was born September 11th, 1943 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, both of his parents were drummers. Uh, he was raised by his mother. His father was estranged, it sounds like, for his childhood, uh, although they did, they did reconnect after. He worked as a soda jerk at a jazz club in Atlantic Beach, New York, in high school, where he often saw Tito Puente perform. Then after high school, he discovered the work of the Nigerian drummer Babatunde Olatunji. Uh, he dropped out of high school his senior year and joined the Airmen of Note, which is like the Air Force's premier uh, jazz band. And just a few uh, notable career accomplishments. In 1991, he appeared before the U.S. Senate Committee on Aging, speaking about the value of healing in drumming. Uh, and so he's done a lot of work with sort of uh, music therapy and bringing drumming to everyone. In 1991, he was also won the first Grammy ever for the best world music album for his album called Planet Drum, which features Mickey Hart with a cast of other world-class percussionists. And in 1996, he composed the music for the Olympics opening ceremony in Atlanta, Georgia. 
And then a few honors he's been bestowed. In 1994, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Grateful Dead. 2003, he was given the Music Has Power Award by the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function uh, for recognition of his advocacy. In 2009, he was inducted into the PAS Hall of Fame, where there's a great write-up if you want to read more about Mickey Hart. And in 2016, he was named one of the 100 Greatest Drummers of All Time by Rolling Stone magazine. He's worked with percussionists including Zakir Hussein, Giovanni Hidalgo, and the Japanese taika group Kodo, as well as many other world percussion musicians. And if you go to the PAS Museum in Indianapolis, they have some Mickey Hart quotes sprinkled throughout. He has a lot of very profound thoughts on, on music and art and drumming. Um, so I just had two Mickey Hart quotes to share. The first is, he says, life is about rhythm. We vibrate, our hearts are pumping blood, we are a rhythm machine, and that's what we are. And then uh, my other Mickey Hart quote for the day is, in the beginning, there was noise. Noise begat rhythm, and rhythm begat everything else. So that's a little little cool. DL on Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I had a work email that came in right when you were saying that. And my dumb ass was like listening to you read that bio. I was half expecting, all right, welcome to the show, Mickey Hart. But, uh, <laughs> but it came back in. You're a busy guy, Caleb. It seems like Mickey Hart, we talked to him a couple, uh, about him a couple times on the show. It seems like he like really early on abandoned like, hey, I'm going to make my career all about me and I'm going to make it about other people bringing other people to the forefront like doing like actual good work like you described and not just like i give money to charity but like i make my career about um, literally helping other people yeah and i think it's it's sort of a crime there were a couple especially on youtube you can find some great like videos of mickey hart like he was actually featured in like a gopro video uh and i, I it's sort of a crime to not share any recordings of him but i i didn't want the podcast to get flagged for copyright or something but uh, I wanted to mention one of my favorite Mickey Hart projects is he produced an album for Kodo called Mondo Head that was released sometime around 2009. Uh, I actually saw Kodo perform live back then. But anyway, it's like it has Zakir Hussein, Giovanni Hidalgo, many others on it. It's a it's a cool album. Check it out. That's so cool. Well, Ben, that was an amazing history segment. But are you sure you don't want to tell us more about Mom Spaghetti? <laughs> I should have looked up some Yelp reviews. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. <laughs> You'd lose yourself in the moment if you did it. All right. Uh, thanks. <laughs> well, without further ado, it is wonderful to have Joby Burgess joining us for today's episode. Um, he enjoys a very diverse and exciting career as a soloist, a session musician, a chamber musician, um, and an educator as well. His solo projects, Power Plant and Pioneers of Percussion have taken him around the world. Recent releases for Signum include Gabriel Prokofiev's Concerto for Bass Drum um, and Eric Whitaker's Marimba Quartets. And as a recording artist, his playing can be heard on major film and TV scores, notably um, leading the percussion sections on Black Panther, Rocket Man, Ad Astra, Mission Impossible, The Darkest Hour, Doctor Who, and The Green Planet. And he is also known for having created the Virtual Marimba Choir, which brought together 227 percussionists from around the world um, during spring 2020 in the earlier ages of the pandemic. Um, he, he has an album coming out soon. In fact, it'll be one day after release day. It's called A Percussionist Songbook. It is a collection of specially commissioned songs without words from John Metcalf, Tunde Jigeti, Dario Maranelli, 
Yaz Ahmed, Graham Fitkin, Dobrinka Tapakova, and Gabriel Prokofiev. I hope I didn't um, murder any of those names. Um, the album is scored for an arsenal of pitch, percussion, and electronics, and is inspired by text ranging from the poetry of Robert Graves, Virago Diop, to novels by Michael Ondaatje and Isaac Asimov, um, American philosopher Michael Sandel, songwriter Peter Gabriel, United Nation population growth statistics and Saudi Arabian folk tales. So a wide range of influences. Joby, I wanted to start off asking about the album. Would you tell us a little bit about the concept of the album? Um, you know, it's a songbook. What is it? What is a song without words? And how did you curate these works that would be included in the album? Yeah, hi. Um, it feels like quite a long time ago. Um, the, the idea was being there for a really long time and the project kind of got delayed because originally the album and the first kind of performances were going to be the back end of 2020. So it's kind of been, it kind of went on the back boiler quite quickly. Um, but the idea is inspired by really my love of 1980s pop music, which was the first music I bought for myself as a child with my, my hard-earned pocket money. Um, the idea of seven inch singles and that sort of three, four, five minute um, encapsulation of something that's really kind of concentrated and perfect in terms of a, a piece of music. And it's the music that I grew up with. And so it's the music that I still kind of go back to, I guess. Um, so I wanted to create something that had a lot of different artists and friends involved writing. Um, and so one of the ideas was to create a, something which has an element of story to it, which is something that I particularly love in music. Um, so the sort of raison d'etre was to create, you know, track length pieces with some sort of pers personal story connected and uh, sort of roll it up in a, in a melodic percussion and electronic um, sort of format. That was kind of the, the very loose brief when we sort of started it. I suppose the, the initial idea for it was kind of the beginning of 2019, um, as I was recording one of those other things you were mentioning. Um, in a in a rather lovely introduction. So did I, I know you work directly with all of the composers? Was there collaboration like between the composers to make this cohesive album, or was it your, you know, kind of you individually um, working with them to find these pieces that would work together so well? It was different. It's different in. It's different for everyone, and it's always different working with with different com different composers. Everyone has a kind of different way in and a, a different relationship with percussion, and also with myself. Um, I was I'm really lucky that the thing that I enjoy most is working with composers and producers, and that's my job. It has been for sort of twenty years. It's kind of what I do, and with this project, it's no different. But most of these people I've got really long associations with, so. Graham Fitkin and Gabriel Prokofiev and Dabrinka Tabakova I've worked with for getting on for 20 years. I mean, Dabrinka and I were at college together in, in the back end of the 90s. So it's kind of, you know, we're on piece three, four, five with some of these composers. So there's kind of, you know, lots of things we've done before. We've toured a lot. And, and some of the relationships are a bit newer. Um, Dario Marinelli, who's really one of the most impressive film composers there is, is someone I've worked for an awful lot over the last sort of 10 years, but we, I've never done anything else apart from, you know, turn up and play on his film scores. So that was kind of a, a, a new thing. And it was a challenge that I know that he really, he really took to, um, 
you know, being in being together, you know, and he he wanted to try things that he wouldn't ever normally get to do, you know, to picture because there's no picture. So, um, so it's kind of different for all of them. Um, I think someone like Graham Fitkin, um, for example, who's who's written for percussion for 25, 30 years very successfully, doesn't need a lot of lot of guidance. Although he he does expect me to be able to play more things than a ever possible. So with pretty much every piece he's ever written for me. And when I played in his band for, for quite a long time, it was always a case of sort of stripping stuff out so that it was actually playable by one person. Um, yeah, and... It's funny you say that. <laughs> I, I just want to mention, I'm actually right now with my students, we're working on uh, Graham Fitkin's hook. Oh, it's it's blurred so you can't see it, but that's the score for it. But yeah, he uh, he does write some things that are uh, maybe impossible to play with, with four mallets in that piece. So... I'm glad to hear that from you. you. Yeah, it's like, yeah, buddy, you got to take one of those notes out there for it to work. Well, the interesting thing about Hook is, Hook, Hook is the reason that I play marimba as opposed to became a rock and roll drummer. So I stumbled into my local record shop in, in I think, 92 and in Bath, where I grew up down in the southwest of England. And um, there was a, 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 a decidu uh, not a decidu that's completely the wrong word, uh, a, an, uh, a record label subsidiary, there we go, of, um, of Decca, and had all these great new pieces. There were, it was, it was kind of like, you know, post-minimalism. So it's things like Andreessen. It was, it wasn't bang on a can. It was kind of a lot more European influences. And Graham's piece, Hook, was the very first piece on that record. And um, having then gone to college and spent eight years, um, spent, uh, eight years listening to that group, Ensemble Bash, who commissioned that piece. I then joined Ensemble Bash, taking the founder member's position. And that piece is a piece that I've played hundreds of times. But that piece was originally not for four mallets. It's a six mallet marimba piece. So it's originally scored. You can tell. <laughs> four mallet chords, uh, six mallet chords for every single player. Um, and it was deemed impossible <laughs> for obvious reasons um and so all those shapes came down to to just four mallets um uh, it's one of my favorite pieces and as i say it's the it's kind of the reason that that i was like oh yeah i want to play the marimba i don't want to just carry on playing rock and roll and jazz drums i want to do do some other things so yeah it's an awesome an awesome piece so yeah good luck performing that with your your students <laughs> I remember thinking we attempted it as a student ensemble once. I, I don't remember where exactly, but we ended up thinking like, yeah, we can't, can't play this. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was tough. Um, let's see, what was I going to say? Oh, hey, uh, you, you have all these wonderful albums, and that's a word you don't hear every musician say anymore. Um, records, CDs, albums. And I was just wondering, like, from some people's perspective you say hey you know do you recommend recording a cd and they'll say like oh heck no like the cds are dead albums are dead it's all you need to, it's all needs to be other something else you know like like from your perspective in your career like do you advise people yes like still record albums and and also how important have these albums been for your career um yeah uh i think it was kind of it, it always seems like a uh, an important thing to do and recording was something that I was interested in as a child I mean I, I think I was mucking around with four track tape recorders um, and writing songs and recording things and ping-ponging and before I even started playing drums 
so to me that the the process and the um the, the 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 love and passion for recording has been there longer than playing percussion at, at all um so it just seems totally natural to me um and when i first started working um all of the things that i was involved in i wanted to make recordings of and i think it's really i think i think one of the things it does one of the things it does do for any musician is it just makes your your reach a little bit further um obviously if you you know if you if you commission a piece of music and, and you play it you know on five concerts you know for 100 people in each gig then you you know you've reached 500 people and that's fantastic but then another thing that you can do is record that piece of music and it might get a, it might get played on the radio and you you're, you're reaching more people and the piece of music you've spent time commissioning um raising money for learning um you know finds a finds a greater public and i think that that's that's one of the one of the, the joys of of making making recordings wherever you do it as a digital thing or a physical thing um i think it's probably more taste and it's more down to you know people who are interested in what you do and and and, and that sort of thing um yeah and then there's something i suppose there's something that also happens which is you you get this in jazz for sure because you know nothing is written so you know with a piece of you know classical music or a piece of conceived music which is passed from the composer to a to a musician as dots on a page then um you you have this kind of finite thing this is what the composer wanted but in jazz you're improvising your you're going to make something of the recording that's the final product and i think one of the things i found really interesting is over the years commissioning pieces of music and then touring them and then recording them um and that recording kind of becomes the final version and that might come after 10 concerts or it might come after 100 concerts um and in this instance with this record it's come after absolutely no concerts which is the first time and I'm really excited about because um, it feels like a better way to get where well, it's certainly a, it's certainly a different way to get get it out into the world um, but we've kind of gone through that process a lot with this record as well cool so in what formats will the album be released it seems like something you'd want to sit down and listen to from beginning to end which um, people don't always do these days so I'm wondering what what have I guess how will it be released and how should people listen to it? Oh, well, people will listen to it however they want. I mean, I've got no, no say and no choice in that at all. That's, that's just the world we live in. Um, so it's available uh, as a streaming thing on every single platform. Um, that's, where, that's where the industry has shifted to. Um, whether you like it or not, that's, I mean, that's where I consume all the music that I listen to um, pretty much. Um, but we've made a we've made a CD, we've made a physical product. I was quite interested in making a vinyl, but it's complicated because it's 52 minutes of music, so it would be a double vinyl, which would be incredibly expensive to to produce. Um, it, it's just too long, so you'd have to take a piece off. That kind of wouldn't work. Um, so yeah, the I mean the the idea of agonising over a, an order for the for the tracks spend a little bit less than they used to used to do about that because most people might just listen to one track it will it will pop up in 
you know, decided by some algorithm or they might hear it on the radio. And I think you just, you know, as the artist, you just accept that. And if, if people are listening to the music, that's the important thing for me. Um, that's, that's, that, that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, it'd be, it'd be lovely if people, you know, sat down and, you know, relaxed for an evening listening to it, but I, I can't, I won't expect that to be very many people. That'll be the, the great minority. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, I, I do want to ask about some of the um, influences and inspiration for the tracks on the album, um, especially the one I, I was reading about United Nation population growth statistics. Which piece is that and what's what's it about there? So that's actually the piece by Graham Fitkin, um, which is called Species. And Graham, Graham doesn't use narrative in his music very much. Um, and he doesn't often so so I asked him to do something I know he doesn't really like to do but occasionally he's done it um and he so he I asked people to take a little bit of story or poem or song or whatever and he ended up saying well do you mind if I use I've been looking at sort of globalization recently and you know the ever population the overpopulation of the planet and I'd quite like to use some words I've taken from the U from the UN a recent UN report on on pop the population explosion. So it starts off in, I should know this, um, it's, I think it starts off in the 1700s where the population is, is really quite small of the planet and across the piece of music, it, it just, it ramps up in terms of, um, of where we're going. So, it, it, and the, the piece of music, which is one of the longer tracks, it's like six minutes. It starts off quite slowly with the years being quite far apart, but the, population increasing only very slightly and of course the last minute it goes from about 5 million to 20 billion but yeah, it kind of looks at the future of where we're where we're headed um so it has that sort of kind of upwards trajectory throughout the piece and then just gives up just stops um so yeah so graham looked at looked at that as as his story which i thought was really interesting because actually even though he doesn't use narrative in his work he does often reference some political things in his in his music. He did a piece for me in 2008 about the use of music as a weapon of torture in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, um, which was just using speech samples triggered on a xylosynth, so on a on a MIDI mallet controller, um, which is which is really um really a really kind of powerful thing um but yeah so yeah graham went for went, went for the overpopulation of the planet <laughs> well it's so interesting i'm gonna have to listen to it again now with that in mind i listened to it um you know last last week listening through and thinking about music but that's so interesting what other what other backstories on the album do you think would be um really helpful for listeners to know oh um I think one one of one of the pieces I particularly enjoyed um, getting quite quite early on was the piece by Dobrinka Tabakova, which is uh, Desert Swimmers, which is based really loosely on a moment from Michael Andreatti's novel, The uh, The English Patient. Um, so it doesn't really take a bit of the English patient English patient and and do it. But in that in that book, there's reference this amazing place in in the Sahara Desert called the Cave of Swimmers, which hundreds of years ago was, a, was an ocean. Um, 
and and now it's just a bunch of you know desert caves but inside it are all these amazing drawings and pictures of of what life was like you know all those many years ago um and so it has this kind of fairly dry you know sort of desert kind of climate and she she you know, decided to use kalimba as the sort of lead instrument in her in her piece as the as the sort of lead melodic melodic instrument for, for her work um so you know that was kind of i think that's kind of nice to know i think i think it's just with all the stories it's just another way into the piece of music as opposed to sitting down and going oh i'm listening to a thing from rumble i'm listening to uh, a thing about you know for vibraphone and anvilock and it's there's just another set of references there's a there's a piece by Yaz Armand, who's a brilliant, um, um, she's British Bahrainian trumpet player, amazing kind of it, it, that East, that sort of Middle Eastern influence with electronics is what you find in all of her work. And um, she found this beautiful Saudi Arabian folk story about um, about the rewards of unselfish acts. So there's a there's an old story about this woman who goes to market to get a pumpkin for feed her young children and on, on the way home with this giant pumpkin she she meets a man who's homeless and has nothing and uh, he asks for help and she puts the pumpkin down and carries the man instead um takes him home feeds him clothes him takes him back to you know gives him a place to stay and then then the next day she is rewarded for she's rewarded from you know whoever uh, god politicians i don't know um her neighbors the goodness of the goodness of the world um with all these wonderful gifts and then her neighbor tries it forces it upon someone and uh um doesn't receive such um kind rewards um so there's all these kind of little little it's just kind of a, another way another way into a piece of music i think for some people it was a, a really conceptual thing in terms of how they wrote the piece and what the piece the narrative of the piece was and for some people it's less connected um yeah I think, well yeah. I, I love hearing these stories and kind of the background of the pieces um how does how does peter gabriel fit in how does peter fit in uh yeah. so um the last track on the record is called take me home and i grew up uh well when i I, I don't live where I grew up. I, I live a little north of London now, but I grew up in the southwest. And one of one of the things I still have a sense of is when I drive back down down um, to the southwest, the sort of greenery. It's kind of like green England. It's you keep on going, you get to Devon, and it's kind of like the rolling hills of of, of England. And for me, that sort of going that going back that way always still feels like home. You know, I grew up there until I was eighteen and, and left. Um, it still feels like home and Peter wrote a famous song called Salisbury Hill so it's it's a line from the end of the first verse take me home um, and it looks the Sol Salisbury Hill looks over Bath which is the sort of city where, very close to where I grew up and also when I was a kid real world studios which is the studios complex that Peter built in the 80s um, it's just a few miles from my house. So I used to ride my bike down Box Hill, Real World's in Box, which is another tiny little village. Um, so yeah, it was just, you know, that was my idea of home. I tried to find something which which would connect home. So that was it. Nice. 
Thanks. Well, well, congratulations on the album. I enjoyed listening to it without um, all of this background information. But <laughs> I'm definitely going to re-listen, and I think it will just enrich the the whole experience. Uh, hey, Jovi, um, I, I'm real interested in a lot of the, you know, just like you mentioned, you're so comfortable with recording, and I think we talked a little pre-show. There's a lot of your own samples and uses in the um, was it song without hope. Uh, yeah, so there's a track called Love Without Hope. Love Without um, Hope, thank you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us, tell us. It's a Robert Graves poem, um, but the piece of music is not played on a on an acoustic instrument. It's played on a xylosynth, which is, it's similar to a mallet cap, but it's made here in, in the UK, so it's got wooden keys. Um, and John Metcalf, you can cycle this all the way back, who was the arranger for Peter Gabriel, so, so that's, that's another connection back in to... Um, to, 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 to my work with some of the other artists involved, actually decided that he wanted to, to write for all the instruments which were used when we worked with Peter Gabriel, which was basically marimba, vibraphone, glockenspiel, and John used to play Celeste on tour as well for some of the tracks. Um, and he wanted to find a way of kind of using that sound world again. So I, many years ago, recorded a library of percussion samples for a company called Spitfire Audio um, at Air Studios um, in Hampstead in North London. And so for that track, Love Without Hope, I'm actually using the Xylosynth, but I'm triggering my recordings of my marimba, my vibraphone, my glockenspiel, and also me playing. I don't know why I got to do the Celeste, because um, I'm not a Celeste player at all, but they, they asked me to, so I was like, yeah, that's fine, okay. Um, and so that was a really interesting way of using my own sounds within a, a kind of a live context because I really hate using the xylosynth um, mm. to just recreate acoustic instruments but actually what John did was then take the samples and layer them up and cover them in delays and different filtering as well um, yeah so that's I mean all that sort of that sort of that use of, of samples and you know getting inside a computer and creating soft synths and recording things and then using the pieces of music has it's been quite an important thing and it kind of goes back to I suppose the first sort of solo projects I did in sort of 2005 um, as power plant was really my way of getting to work with electronics again I sort of felt when I finished college I really need desperately needed to just be really good at playing the instruments because I was quite a late starter percussionist as you probably gathered by me not knowing how to play marimba when I was 16. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, just a compliment for you, you know, and of course we've crossed paths before and I've seen you, you know, perform, I guess it was Croatia, we decided we were both playing and um, I saw you play tennis cow, like, I, I mean, it's very easy to look at a performer like Joby and think, oh, he, he must be like, you know, virtual instrument creator, it, film score person, but usually those people don't play Safa on a CD or Takimitsu on a CD. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And it's very rare, I think, to see those two things together, like someone who's this techie, but also plays Safa. So it's, it's, it's cool you said that. I, I was, I was going to pivot just, just real quick. I was, um, I'm slowly inching along, learning a little bit more about <laughs> writing. Um, it's mostly just for tape playback pieces but using virtual instruments and like getting a little more skill, like I said, inch by inch uh, in that stuff. But I, I, I came across one of your virtual instruments 
And I saw the Spitfire stuff recently, but I mean, probably a year ago or so, I saw one of your Sonic Cinemas. It's like, oh, this is a really cool sample library. And then as I poked around more, it's like, wait a minute, it's Joby. That's that's too cool. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about like how uh, how you came to do those things and maybe how some of our young people would come to uh, to do that. Because I'm telling you, dude, I can like fling a spring in front of a microphone. I can do that just as well as you can, but nobody's paying me to do that. They're paying you to do that. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of the double standard, if we're going to be honest. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... Um... I think the studio things, the, the studio things, different. I mean, there's even here in the UK, there's there's a studio, there, there's a big studio scene in the UK. There's a studio scene in the LA, and you know, there's bits of stuff elsewhere, but it doesn't encompass very many players. There's, you know, the last two years, which have been a bit different. There's basically been six of us who've done the majority of the work, and that's going to be similar in in Los Angeles as well. Um, and there's, it's, you know, it's a bit like if you're the timpanist in, you know, the Chicago symphony, you're really good at playing the timpani in the Chicago symphony. You, you have a thing, you understand how that works. Um, and if you, if you spend a lot of time gaining the experience of being in a recording situation, then yeah, you are going to get those, those gigs and those opportunities. I think it's sort of self, um, self-serving i mean it, it just think things do carry on in that way um you know if you if you if you do nice jobs and if you have a a good way a good way of working um i with that project the uh, the abstract i think you said it was um which is basically a giant cowbell it's it's the one of the morph beats um inventions the big cowbell with strings and bits and bobs and stuff on it a lot of your inventions it looked like oh it's not no it's no it's a thing it, um you can buy one of those it's called really? Martin. Called a Marvin. Um, so, the, say again, sorry, it's called a what? It's called Marvin. It's like Marvin. Big yeah. So there's a company in, I think, in California called Morph Beats. They make bits of metal. I think I can't remember. I don't know the guys who who run it, uh-huh. but they they make just different bits of metal percussion. And the guys at Sonic Cinema um, got in touch via one of the film music fixers and said, "Oh, we'd like to work with Joby, and we'd like him to." create a couple of different um come and play on on a couple of different instruments so we can sample it we went down to british grove studios which is mark knopfler's studio in west london it's one of the private studios in london but occasionally does sort of commercial hire as well and we went with a brilliant friend called nick woolage who's a emmy winning um recording engineer who actually also recorded my current album and we spent we only spent a day making these me making samples and nick recording them to create those two libraries um and i i got given the marvin a week before and spent a little bit of time just having a play with it improvising finding some sounds um finding things that i thought would be useful for film composers at sort of back ends and we kind of set about and you know found some really interesting micing positions um and created a bunch of samples and then they took that the guys at sonic cinema took those samples and i think that that pro- you'll probably know better than me if you've got it um because i don't have a copy of it um but i think there are straight samples there's me playing with different mic positions in different ways bows brushes dreads whatever um and you can play it you can use those samples and play it yourself and you can change the ambience of the room and stuff but i think they did some 
blocks and posts stuff where you can, you know, they 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 play with the sounds and the sounds become something else as well. It's not it's not a really traditional sample library. It does a bit more. And actually, the sample libraries have started to go go that way in mm. terms of opening them up to you know producers, so you don't have to be a trained. How um, sorry? Uh, how long did it take to do? that one for instance they are, some of our listeners are young enough they may not know really what the, this all entails and i think you're explaining it great but i'm just curious how 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 long did it take to, to do so we did we did we did i think we must have done two sessions that's six hours mm. sampling that cowbell okay which isn't a huge amount of detail but it's enough to make to get an, you know enough stuff to make a product like that that, that's great. I mean, that gives us a sense of how long it would take, you know, so if you're doing three instruments, you're looking at maybe six sessions, you know, so. Well, it depends. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, it depends really how deep you go. So when you're sampling an instrument, you have to think about what the end use is going to be. Um, so you think about how many dynamic levels you want to play the instruments at. So we all think we can play, you know, hundred dynamic levels but in reality of course we can't the, I, I can't you can okay yeah. <laughs> um you, it's volume knob right here yeah well that's yeah that's that's different so you sit in a studio and you play you try and play the same thing over and over again um at the same level and move up to the next one and then you have to find a range of dynamics which you can record at so a quite detailed sample is going to be like maybe eight dynamics on most instruments and on some it's going to be really limited um and then you have to do this thing called you do this thing we call round robins so you basically you don't have one pianissimo sample so that every time someone triggers the pianissimo sample you have depending on the instrument you might have five or eight or 16 or 32 so if it's a rhythm instrument where you're going to end up playing you know, a pattern in 16th, you're gonna need lots of them. So you've got the variation and you're gonna sample the right hand and you're gonna sample the left hand. Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it, kind of, it kind of really depends. I've been doing some more sampling recently and um, we talked about what, what has been done previously where sometimes you might just do, you might quickly just throw an instrument in. You might get it recorded in, you know, half an hour. You might just do a couple of round robins. You might just do a few dynamics, and it'll be enough in the terms of someone mocking up a score, writing it. But in terms, in terms of where that whole industry's gone, 10, 12 years ago, it was the very beginning of that industry in terms of what you could buy commercially. It's happened for a long time. I mean, the the granddaddy is Hans Zimmer. He was the guy making his own private sample libraries 20 years ago. Um, you know, hiring a huge studio, hiring loads of musicians, and making something so he could effectively. Um, convince the producers of the, of the movie that they needed to hire a big enough orchestra for him to to re-record this music you know with a big enough thing that was that's kind of that's 10 years ago and 12 years ago when I got involved that was always the, that was kind of the way it was going it's like the the it's about convincing people to get real musicians into the studio to record film and tv music so it's kind of yeah it's kind of a again it's it's another way of growing work um for music for real musicians although i think a lot of people people often go yeah but surely you're just doing yourself out of a job well the reality is actually you're not you're probably creating a lot more jobs for a lot more people at the same time which is quite which is a good thing obviously because <laughs> it's a pretty crowded marketplace for everyone 
Does that answer your question? Very vaguely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Hey, Joe, we had a question. I was just perusing your uh, shows and movies you played through, and I get to geek out a little bit because you've recorded a lot for Max Richter. Um, mm. I was just curious, just knowing Max Richter's style of writing, how is that different from maybe because I know the like the soundtrack for the Avengers is way different than you know that big ethereal spacey Max Richter sound. Um, yeah, is there any difference? Uh, well, it's just a different piece of music, isn't it? I suppose it's on the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's the end of that question. That's about right. <laughs> you know, it's a, just a different job. It's a different day. You you listen to the music. I mean, you know where you know when Max calls. Well, Max doesn't call me, but you know when the fixer calls me and says, "Oh, Max is doing this new score." You know, we're doing this thing. Um, you have a different sense of what's going to be required. And I've done. Max was in Berlin for uh, the. I don't know in the in the middle part of the noughties, I suppose. And he sort of came back to England in 2015 or 2016 and um started working with everyone back in the UK, which was lovely. And the first thing I did with him was a film called Morgan. I don't know if you know that score. Um, I only saw it really recently. And uh that that process was really interesting. It was the first time I'd done this where he created this toolkit. So before he even started writing the film, he had a few little ideas. And he had the string section, a small string section, come in for a day and record some different ideas, um, different, you know, not samples, but bits of, you know, little motifs and things he could go away and start to write with. And he did the same with me on percussion. And then he went away and wrote the picture and then came back and then recorded everything, you know, having used all these initial recordings to give himself, you know, kind of a, a little toolkit, you know, for, for writing the thing. But yeah. There's something Max's music is definitely different, and you have a different sense about what the the session is going to be. We did a really nice film for Max called I think it's called Hostiles, which is set in um, set in the the West in America. Um, I'm not sure what the period is, but it's got it's got these really amazing bits of music which you which you hear in things like Sleep and. If people who know Max's music, it's very, very long and very, very sinuous. And obviously in percussion, what we end up doing is again, creating these very, very long arcs. So you might play something on bass drums or taikos. You find a really, really, really nice sound, but then you're playing something across three minutes and you're just doing a, a take where you just ever so slowly make these these arcs up and down. Um, and then you might layer those to, to thicken out in some different way. Um, but he's got, I mean, he's one of those people, he knows, he knows what he's after. He's, it, and for him, it's really about create, you know, finding the sound in the studio. You know, it's, you know, how are we gonna play this title? Are we gonna use our hands? Are we gonna use some soft mallets? Are we gonna use some sort of great big, you know, sweeping brush? Um, and finding something, the colour of the instrument really fits with the picture. Um, that's probably the biggest challenge with working with, with Max. Is we it like, a, like the way you just worded it, is it, um, let's say like, yeah, I need like a big, like long sweeping sound. And then you say like, cool, I know how to do that. I'm gonna take a broom and like 
swoosh on a bass drum or does he say hey can you take a broom and swoosh on a bass drum i mean i guess every composer is a little different what is it in the case of max does he like know how to do it already or does he rely on you i think there's and there's a convers there's, there's often a conversation they'll, they'll he'll often have an idea about what he wants and he'll he'll say that and then you know if it if that works that works and that's great um and sometimes you go well actually perhaps we could try this or you know there's there's this instrument we could use for this or um whatever and, and occasionally max you might send there might be a little bit of video that comes or uh, something you know a bit of reference material a little demo to listen to that happens with max a bit more than with other composers we did um there was uh, there was a film called ad as ad astra so it's to the stars isn't it which Max did the main amount of the score for. And there's very, I don't think there's very much percussion on that at all. And I was asked to go in and play some, some bowed vibraphone and that was it. And uh, he said, oh, it's for this outer space thing. It's just gonna be bowed vibraphone and you'll be in with, um, you'll be in with the uh, Celeste player at the same time and you guys will just do your thing. We only need you for, you know, two or three hours, just this couple of bits of music. And I said, oh yeah, it's cool. The music sounds great. I said, I've got this other instrument that's called the, so an aluminium harp or rub rods. I don't know how you guys would know that instrument in, in America. Probably rub rods, which so, is you don't mean a water phone. No. So rub rods is um yeah, rub rods. There's there's like an Emil Richard collection video about it. Yeah. So originally JC Deegan in the 20s made something called an aluminium harp, which are these very long rods of solid aluminium. And um jerry goldsmith uses rob rods in poltergeist a couple of his movies from the 70s and uh, i picked one up i picked up a modern version of it uh, about 10 years ago so it's like two octaves it's it's the same range as pro towels um, and the, the longest rod is 10 foot long and you put on gloves covered in rosin and you you play this instrument and it creates these amazingly high long tones so it's kind of like bowed vibraphone but on anabolic steroids. So in that instance, I was like, oh, Max, I've got this instrument. You might like it. So we ended up doing bow vibes with, you know, the anabolic steroids version um, and did everything in octaves because the, the vibraphone doesn't go high enough. And in reality, uh, um, the harp doesn't go low enough because we, yes, he had to turn around below, below a C and it's like many instruments. It stops on a C and he needed the B flat for the melody. And there's a great, bit in that movie where it's the strings playing the top line and then the harp sits on top of the strings and you, you'd think it might be a some sort of synth but it's not it's a bit of percussion played in the room so cool yeah well I think I think I've said this on the show before maybe but I feel like there's a growing number of younger you know high school students or college students that say like I want to do film score recording like I want to you know and and maybe part of it is just that people love movies that they were watching, they want to be involved in that side of things. But I have theory that there's guidance counselors somewhere telling students like, this is a viable path as a musician, you can do. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you, how would we, how, how would preparing for a recording session for a film score be different than preparing for a live performance? And are there skills that you need as a session percussion? You've already addressed some of this sure. um, that are different from like playing in a, a symphony orchestra or playing solo repertoire. Well, you don't see the dots until you're recording them. So it's quite a different, <laughs> it's quite a different skill. Um, so sight reading, if you can't sight read um, very, very well, <laughs> then it's gonna be, a, it's not the career for you. Um, 
so the red light goes on and you, you're opening it you know most of the time you're seeing the music as, as you as you as you get it you know um if you get there early on the first day then you can open up the charts when they're put out you know half an hour before you start um if you're principal which um more and more so i have been over the last number of years you might get some access just so you can work out how you're going to set instruments up but it's not designed in order that that's not really the design in terms of you know learning the music um because that's not really the expectation at all um so yeah being a sight reader having uh have having the ability to play with click i mean pretty much everything is recorded to click these days it has been for a long time um so you need you need to be used to that and you also therefore need to really have a good sense of your inner your inner pulse your sense of inner pulse i mean a, a click doesn't tighten your rhythm up I and mean, you just by turning the click up really loud doesn't make you play in time with it um in fact me and most of my colleagues will turn the click down be asking for the click to come down so that we can you know hear and feel what we're doing and then i think probably the most well i mean they're all important but possibly the most important thing is quality of sound you just have to be able to make a great sound on every instrument you play um or every instrument you're going to be asked to be to be playing um and you so you really have to know how that happens um you have to you you, you can't turn up and not really know how to scrape a tam-tam in an effective way and there are lots of players who who, who can't you know because you you have to get it right first time. You can't just be, um, you know, relying on something else. And if you if you don't have that that background, then you're going to find it really hard. Um, yes, yeah, so there's quite a lot of 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 skills. I'm not trying to make it sound really difficult because it's like any it's like playing any bit of music. You are just playing a piece of music. But I suppose there's yeah, it's kind of fast and it's it's fast and quite quite furious and there's not lots of time to think. So you, I think you need to be, you know, I, I think for, for me, for preparing for recording sessions, I mean, I just make sure that I'm really fit and well, um, rested. Um, be two hours on time, don't be five minutes late, because if you're five minutes late, you're never going back. Um, because a recording studio full of musicians is a very, very expensive place to be. Um, yeah, just be prepared for everything. I think just, uh, just, and and that's really, and that might seem really odd because some days, yeah, I'll go in for four or five days and I'll be playing down the line playing bass drum and I might not have very much to do. I might play some nice sub hits and make sure I'm playing with Bill who's playing the temps. And uh, so it's kind of, you know, just different, different skills um yeah that's it's it feels like kind of a, a a big answer but it's there's quite there's it's, it's there are some different things but it's it's not so different to everything else do you know why do you know why um like in the scene I'll call it the scene like they're so guarded about the scores and the parts and i know when like it seems like it's not till decades after a film comes out like we like actually see what the parts are sometimes and maybe that's because they just get leaked they get leaked <laughs> enough that people have them but I, I remember i was i was uh i was teaching a, 
a, a few, gosh, a few summers ago in a Zoom session, and we had someone, Timpanis, uh, working heavily in LA, and uh, he's like played on the latest Star Wars movies and, and done all the great stuff, and he screen shared his part and it, it was like okay now this is blacked out that's blacked out and like okay like nobody's recording right it's like what, what why it's just you know it's just one part why are they so guarded and careful with it all is it just copyright i i don't know it's definitely changed a lot though recently i mean the amount of ndas i've signed in the last two or three years compared to the two or three years previous is every other film these days and that's non-disclosure. Yeah, non-disclosure agreement. So you just can't talk about certain films. I mean, it's all they've been released and you know, say what you want about them. I mean, um, yeah, I think it's, I, I, I'm not quite sure, to be honest. I don't really know. I mean, I'm quite happy, that, you know, it's nice work. So I'll, I'll sign it and that's fine. I'll yeah. go to work and do my thing. I'll play percussion, I'm a percussionist. Um, but I, I, I guess the, um, I guess it's just protection against people knowing what's what's going to be coming out in two months time or one year's time or i mean it's all it's the industry you know like i mean like everything's been a bit weird for the last few years for fairly obvious reasons um but it's it used to be a very last minute industry and that's sort of changed a little bit i mean like films have been sitting there for 15 months and they're finished everything's done you know music's the last bit on the film and there's been films i've worked on and the films come out a year later that's really odd but i think people just waiting waiting for a moment where they can truly make their money back which has become more difficult at this at this time so it, it was cool talking to Emil Richards about how how it has changed I mean he talked a lot about and went on this really beautiful rant about what the composer's role is and I mean I don't, I don't know if that adds to this conversation at all other than just that like it has changed a lot and it's not surprising to hear it's changed again and especially over COVID yeah and the the, the the composer's often not being there that's or being on the other end of a of a screen on mm -hmm. um, on the other end of the telephone that you know that's made things a bit harder also you know playing with an orchestra really well not an orchestra spread out but playing with your section you know really spread out and recording that's you know that's been a bit more of a challenge i think probably less so for, for us in the percussion section but other departments have had it really it's been really challenging you know mm -hmm. my wife is a uh an oboist, a session oboist, and I think we were, I don't know what film it was, but they did this amazing thing at Abbey Road where they they tied the studios together so that you could have, because you couldn't have as many people in the room, so they had the strings in the big room in, in, in one and then the woodwind in Studio Two, which is the room the Beatles recorded all their records in, which is a smaller room, but it's still, you know, you get a 50-piece orchestra in there. So, you, but they could only have, you know, their section of like 12 woodwind or whatever. So she'd play Cor Anglais. And so she'd be at one end of the room and she'd be trying to tune something with the alto flute who's sitting six people away, but effectively 18 meters away. And it's kind of, you know, those, those, things, have, those, those things have been really challenging within the recording industry for sure. Mm -hmm. You said those at Abbey Road? Yeah. Ben, have you heard of Abbey Road? Do you know what that is? Ben, <laughs> Ben Charles, you like the Beatles? Well, well aware. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, you've heard of this band? They're, they're I've heard British of this, this little indie group called the Beatles. <laughs> they're real popular. <laughs> All right, I'm done. 
Well, there are two things I want to make sure that we talk about before we wrap. This is also interesting. Um, before we started recording this episode, we had a little bit of chat about um, Gabriel Prokofiev's bass drum concerto that Joby plays really well, and it received rave reviews. Um, it's super cool. If you haven't heard it, go and check it out. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, Joby, whose idea was it for it to be a bass drum concerto? Was it something like, did, did Prokofiev pitch this to you? And were you like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Or were you like, I'm not sure about that. Um, what was that conversation like? So Gabriel wrote me a suite for Global Junk, which is uh, lots of found objects wrapped around with electronics and video. The first piece of which there was a standalone movement called Fanta, which is a piece of music for a Nigerian glass Fanta bottle with a looper and a laptop to process the sound. I think that was like 2006. And there's there's a video on Joby's website of that I just wanted to mention. Okay, cool. Thanks. And there was, um, we were recording that record, Import-Export. We were recording that together in Gabriel's studio at some point in, I don't know, 08 or 09. And so we spent a week just recording the different parts and the elements for that. And I said, oh, Gabriel, I'm going to go and have a meeting with um, the London Contemporary Orchestra. It's quite a young, young up and coming orchestra at the time in, in London. Um, they're interested in me playing a concerto with them. That'd be cool. But obviously, I, I don't have any concertos that I, that I want to play because um, I think they're a strange idea, personally. Um, <laughs> and I said, would you what, what do you reckon? Do you want to write a concerto? And um, he was like, yeah, for sure. And the thought process between of that suite was that the Fanta bottle piece works so well because it's just one tiny object with every sound. And then we moved it onto some plastic bags and a packing pallet and an oil drum. And it was all about maximum sounds from one object. Sort of ties in with my love of um, the percussionist called Nana Vasconcellos. Um, and he said, yeah, perhaps we can carry it on. We could just do one instrument and I'm, I was like yeah absolutely we should just keep this journey going and I think the bass drum was probably his idea as opposed to any other instrument and it's a really cool cool thing because obviously everyone thinks you know the bass drum and it's not quite the butt of every joke in our section but it, it's there all the time it's such an important part of the percussion section I mean you hear it in every style context of of music of western music coming out of nightclubs you know coming out of car stereos and it was just let's take this hum almost humble instrument put it at the front and find enough things to sustain it as a solo thing um, and put the orchestra put the orchestra around it with it so yeah it's definitely a dialogue but I'm pretty sure the bass drum was Gabriel the, the fact that it's a bass drum is Gabriel's Gabriel's idea for sure yeah it's it's really refreshing to me um i, I don't know about y'all i'm i'm a little tired of the percussion concerto template of like you got your mallet feature over here and your big multi-station here and then your i don't know it's like kind of it's always seems like i just well also just like setting up like i mean setting up one multi-piece alone takes forever than to roll out a marimba and a vibraphone but yeah like it's it's a lot well yeah it's just the old the uh, the age-old question of like yeah can you write for just this thing you know like you know how many how many new sounds do you need until the whole stage is full and yeah I yeah i i don't i i find i find it really problematic i mean there are there are one or two percussion concertos that i really like but in general i find them a bit sort of 
this is really general comments. It's not picking on any particular pieces or, we need, or, we or need whatever. names. Names. Yeah, not from me. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll edit. I'll edit. I, I, it's, like, it's like it's like toy shop stuff, isn't it? It's like someone running around, and it's like let's hit everything in the toy shop once, and that's great. And I think that uh, for, for me, the concertos that work the best are the ones that are really refined. You go and see an amazing cellist or violinist play. You know, they don't need to pick up a viola halfway through, or, or you know, set fire to a whatever. You know, they don't need all those other things they can there's enough in that instrument and i think it's really refreshing when you see a concerto when you see you know an instrument you know really played you know you really investigate the sounds and i think in terms of the composer but also in terms of the audience i think it's a much more powerful powerful experience personally so i was really i was delighted um with that with that concerto mm. um I, I haven't played it loads um, but it's been it's been a lovely journey to premiere it in the states and then in, in in the UK and do some nice performances and then to make a make a recording a few years ago um, was a, a, a lovely way to sort of um, you know take take it to the next next step and obviously it means that a few more people find find out about it which is great. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people play that piece particularly, but uh... I've never seen it done. Um, I've definitely thought if I were to play one next I would I would like to do that cool yeah do you have can you just like send me a pdf all the parts and stuff that'd be cool you think yeah, all right. <laughs> Gabriel will be happy about that <laughs> yeah well I won't tell him it's fine <laughs> so do you have any um were there were there discoveries of favorite effects on the bass drum in the process of learning and playing this piece um yeah we what did we do so there's a bit at the end of the second movement, I think, which is, it's got, um, it turns out it's a giant lion's roar. And there was a friend of mine, Pete Neville, who's over in Australia. I saw him do some, I think Lies Olympies, where you bow the lion's roar. So that's kind of a feature at the end of the second movement or first movement. I can't remember which one. Um, thimbles, there's a lot of thimbles on, on, on that. And it needed we kind of end up using different skins on different sides to try and get different effects out of the skins. Um, damping was the damping was the endless conversation, trying to get the drum, get a mixture of the drum dry enough so you could get the articulation, but um, not take away so much that you could still get the sub from the drum in the console. And then tuning the drum to the console hall was always, I don't know, it felt like it was a bigger thing than it needed to be, but it was, it was it seemed it seemed quite important to get the tuning just right um with with that piece and then you know the age-old whole problem with most percussion instruments especially when you you rock up and someone's hired you something is getting rid of all those little creaks and squeaks that you don't want <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> and, a, and a bass drum is an awful instrument for that um you know it really is i always think if you you know if, it, if it's really starting to rattle and creak, you're probably playing it a bit too loud. Um, but with that, with that piece, you sort of need you sort of need to get across the orchestra. But there's quite a lot. There's quite a lot of it where, in the concerto, where you're actually playing quite soft, quite subtle sounds, and the orchestra's kind of playing down behind you. I the other thing, I, I, another percussion percussion concerto thing, and I think I personally think concertos work better when they're like this. Is there's no orchestral percussion. So it's not so the solo instrument doesn't get cluttered by something else. Mm. 
Um, I think there's, there's quite a lot of concertos where you effectively the, the, a soloist comes in and does their thing, and then there's there's two you know guys or girls in the orchestral section you know playing their hearts out as well, and it's like well yeah fine whatever that's just what you do isn't it? Um, so I always find that find that a bit strange. So I think it's I think it was it was helped that concerto by you know just being this really focused thing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so great. It's such a cool piece. Um, last thing I want to ask you pretty quickly before we wrap is I remember seeing this back in 2020. You put together this virtual marimba choir that we mentioned earlier um, of your arrangement of Eric, Eric Whitaker's sleep. And you ended up with 227 marimba players from 40 countries who recorded videos and um, just knowing the kind of work that must have gone into making all of that look and sound so good. I have to ask, what did you learn in the process of putting together that project? Don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's so cool. I, I went back and watched it. I remember seeing it, um, I guess, probably on Facebook when you were putting it together and I didn't end up making a recording for it. And then I was watching it and I was thinking like, oh, I should have done that. Like it was just, there was so much going on at the time. But what did you learn? Um, I, well, I learned an awful lot about cameras and lighting and how not to do it because <laughs> I mean like the, the world sort of collapsed and switched off and it was it was so it was so weird and uh, I just I, I, I didn't feel like I could stop I was like I did that that thing I didn't have a holiday I was like but I have to do something. I, you know, I've got kids. You know, it's, you know, I have to feel like I'm providing. I think it's perhaps that sort of, you know, I know it's a British thing particularly, but it's certainly my that was my reaction to when when the world shut down, and we just recorded this disc of of Eric's music, and there was this amazing pictures in in Italy of. Um, people singing from the rooftops to each other, making music in this really gorgeous way. You know, it's that kind of the music. You know, people using music as a, a way to communicate to each other from from the rooftops, and it was it was it was really touching. And I, I thought, like, wow, yeah, maybe. So obviously, Eric Eric did the virtual choir as a as a thing. You know, many years ago, and so the format's there. It works. Um, and I just sort of thought, well, maybe, maybe there's a thing I could do with this. I'm not going to get to go and play this music because obviously, you know, pandemics don't last two weeks. You only had to read the history books to realize it was going to be a couple of years. Um, and I, yeah, just sort of put it out there as a, as a thing to fill my time and, and, and hopefully a, a thing that might be nice for people to do. I had so many lovely conversations with people I didn't know, you know, percussionists I didn't know from around the world um who who did and didn't get involved because they had you know time or they didn't have time or they had an instrument or they didn't have an instrument whatever whatever around it was um i think i probably learned something human about you know what what it what it means to you know connect with people and just you know say you know hey we're okay or yeah more more than anything techie um you know like you know processing video and all that sort of stuff you know that's just part of how you have to make one of those things um, and I was really lucky that I have some you know really close friends and colleagues who were able to help me you know make that thing it's certainly that that, that video is not me on my own that's not you know yeah I made the arrangement I, I spent hundreds of hours um, 
more than <laughs> any other person, which is fine. It, um, but it was, yeah, I think it was that kind of sitting on the, the end of a computer talking to people uh, or, you know, meeting people and just sort of having that shared experience with people around the world at a time when you could just see that yeah, things were really tough for, for most people. I particularly feel, I mean, everyone had it tough, but, you know, if you were a freelancer, that was a nightmare. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we've talked about this on the show before too, but we we have always loved um, and appreciated doing the podcast because we get to connect with so many people. But I think we all especially appreciated it when you know we were in our houses twenty four seven, and that was the only time we got to like sit down and you know talk about music and life and percussion. Um, so I, I get that. Ben, I think you have something. Yeah. Is there anything else before wrap? Okay, uh, well, we started the episode with some history, and I mentioned uh, Eminem's uh, restaurant, Mom's Spaghetti, and so I thought it'd be great to end the episode oh, by, by reading some Yelp reviews. Oh, <laughs> I just picked three quick Yelp reviews. Uh, just random, from, just random Yelp reviews. From uh, from Carden Inn in Auburn, Washington. Uh -huh. uh, the spaghetti is good and standard, but the meatballs are to die for. The bread was also just right. Five stars. Uh, from Mike K in Somerset, New Jersey. Where else would you get spaghetti and meatballs served in a Chinese food container? The buildup led to a bit of disappointment. He goes on, would I go back perhaps and maybe order the spaghetti sandwich? Three stars. And last but not least, John M from California. Got our boy Cameron sick during his football game. <laughs> Was throwing up from eating it the night before. Nearly lost us the game because of it. One star. <laughs> Then I don't know if we all know. I don't know if we all know what you're talking about. The Yelp reviews from Eminem's restaurant. Gotcha. Yep. <laughs> the one connecting thread of this episode. <laughs> yeah, the one common thing. I thought we were gonna have such a nice, um, I don't know, positive nope. experience <laughs> ending to this episode with our esteemed guests. That's here. why I started with. There's nothing else, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we better wrap this up before Ben has anything else to add. So, Joby, thank you so much for joining us for this episode and sharing your thoughts and experiences with us. It's a pleasure. So lovely to meet all of you and see you again, Casey, as well. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Joby. That was fun.